Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And at the end of each month, um, we also do these After Dark episodes with Emily Jashinsky. Uh, Emily is a fellow with us at IWF. Um, she is also the culture editor over at The Federalist. Um, she does journalisming stuff um, over with Young America's Foundation. And she has a segment with Ryan Grimm every week uh, on Breaking Points, which is count called Counterpoints. Did I get it all right this time? Yeah. You got it all right. And I still always love how when you begin these episodes, you say controversial topics with interesting people. And Emily is on this week, which means we're <laughs> going to be talking only about non-controversial topics. And I will be as uninteresting as is possible. Yeah, that's the goal. That's that's the goal. Uh, <laughs> well, in the lineup of topics that we have that are totally uninteresting, actually, speaking of uninteresting topics, I will confess to being completely bored about the debt ceiling fight. I do not want to hear any more about it. I know that you actually have important things to say on it. Um, but that the debt ceiling fight and the the kickoff to the 2024 primary on the Republican side are both topics that like really don't want to spend much time on. That being said, um, there have been some important developments in that race. Ron DeSantis this month has formally entered the race. But I did want to get especially your perspective, Emily, because you you um, and I know you didn't sort of go into journalism to to focus on this, but you do end up focusing on hyper novelty, on tech stuff, right? Um, and I wanted to get your take on the failure to launch of the the Twitter Spaces thing, um, not from the perspective of how it's going to hurt Ron DeSantis, because that may be true, but I'm just not interested in it, because it seems like there was all this wind at the sails of Twitter as basically launching itself as a new media company. It's obviously what Elon Musk envisions for the platform. And then we have Tucker all but saying outright that he's going to bring his show directly to Twitter um, when he comes back, right? Um, and then you have the announcement of a major presidential campaign that's supposed to be on Twitter, um, and, and it goes badly wrong. Uh, well, I mean, the, the DeSantis camp is spinning it as like, we had so many people that we crashed the servers. Um, but, you know, you should be anticipating that kind of stuff. You should have been, it, it looks sort of like amateur hour. Um, does this hurt uh, the, the sort of attempt to make Twitter a real competitor in this media eco space or whatever uh, ecosystem uh, versus more legacy outlets versus cable TV, et cetera, et cetera? I think you're. I think it does um, because the people who would make those decisions are the ones that paid closest attention to what happened um, last week. As we're taping this, that was last week. That was last Wednesday. Um, so I think you know if you're at another campaign and you're deciding whether or not to get in the space, and you see that Twitter, you know, even knowing for a period of days they were going to be hosting a high pro profile uh, conversation just wasn't prepared to do it yet i think from the from the campaign standpoint there are a lot of people who are going to say we're just we're not taking that risk now in the the tucker daily wire type space um i think no i think actually people probably learned a lot from this and elon musk probably learned a lot from this as his team is having conversations with folks like tucker and the daily wire about what their launch is going to look like uh, specifically because you know they've they have more time and there's a lot of money on the line. Obviously that could bring big, big ad dollars back to Twitter and Twitter needs ad dollars. It needs to increase its user base, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think that's probably still in the works. I think for the average voter, um, for the average voter, I think the, 
our memories as voters are so short that this is already out of the news cycle. I think we've seen that. Um, maybe it's sunk into some people's minds that you know Trump got a he, he got some good dunks in on DeSantis. If you're into if you're in it for the memes, they were the you know Trump got the upper hand there. Um, but you know David Sachs and Elon Musk are deep pocketed people, and that does matter in the primary. So I understand why Ron DeSantis um, went in that direction um, because it you know closened his relationship with. Uh, those two folks. And the last thing I would say is just, it's hard to rail against elite incompetence when, you know, the, the platform's glitching. Uh, like that's, that's a really, like that is a narrative arc. Like the, if you, that is a messaging problem. Um, you know, so if, if the, if this were to continue, if, if Ron DeSantis were to do more stuff with Twitter or whatever, I think that would genuinely be a problem. But, um, I think for now it's probably out of the average person's, um, memory and for good reason, because he did more substantive interviews with all kinds of folks in conservative media, Dana Lash, um, you know, Mark Levin, uh, Trey, Gowdy uh, right afterwards. And I guess at least that was the contingency plan. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about what he said, because the, so Ron DeSantis um, hit Trump for the first time directly. I mean, there's been some snide hits back and forth, and there's certainly been plenty of their surrogates going after each other. And of course, Trump himself has come up with the nicknames and has directly hit DeSantis over and over and over again. But DeSantis had not hit back until now. And he gave a pretty I mean, to people like me, very convincing, like short take about several key policy issues, basically saying um, hitting Trump from the right and saying, you know, why are you criticizing me for my vote against amnesty in Congress? That's actually supposed to be the position that you took. Um, and to the extent that you're criticizing me from the left, it doesn't make any sense on this this immigration issue. Right. Um, and, and also the obvious uh, pointing out that you know, Fauci worked for Trump, um, that that many of the decisions on the national level with regard to COVID uh, were not as, um, as uh, you know, in retrospect, look like mistakes in comparison to the decisions that, that DeSantis made in Florida, right? Um, it seemed like pretty substantive. And I'm wondering whether you think that actually matters at all. Because immigration is was one of the key 2016 issues for Trump, right? Um, and, and I think it is an issue that really does, if you look at consistently over time, you know, the first big demonstrations from the right were not the Tea Party of, of the modern era. It was in 2007 when George W. Bush proposed amnesty. Um, there, you know, immigration has been a subterranean issue in Republican politics, a serious one for the last 30, 40, even longer years. And and Trump very much rode at least this was one of the important things that he rode to victory on in 2016. So do you think that issue still has salience? And do you think that it has salience as sort of argued by Ron DeSantis? Do you think that's actually an attack that will land or has basically every attack <laughs> against Trump, no matter what the substance of it is, is now like coded left? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the answer is definitely that immigration, you're right, uh, still has really deep resonance because it's one of those, I think, class fault lines. I think, you know, if, if you're a, um, especially like in terms of where um, Trump picked up voters in the Rust Belt, people who belonged to unions for a really long time, where the unions had left them behind on this issue and where Bernie Sanders would not talk like he used to on this issue. I think it, it's very, very important to voters specifically because um, it, they see it as that. They see it as a basic question of fairness. Um, even you know the, the left all the time likes to say, 
you don't even live in a border state. Why do you care about immigration? And it's like, obviously, you know, every state now deals with issues that border states deal with because uh, the federal government, um, you know, Ron DeSantis does his trolling, but the federal government actually does that on its own, which, which is the point that he's, you know, basically making um, mean, by sending people migrants everywhere. Yeah, they, they help pay them pay for bus tickets. Yeah, it's just that it's a complete racket from the south of Mexico where there's, you know, UN funded grants, Catholic charities that are dealing with all of this, um, all the way up to, you know, Minnesota, uh, where people, you know, obviously deal with some of this stuff too. So all that is to say, um, I think immigration is still really important, but I also think, I feel like to some extent, there's never going to be a fatal error politically um, on a policy from Donald Trump. I should say on a, maybe not on a policy, but on a, like, uh, on a, a messaging strategy. I don't know what I'm trying to say here other than, I mean, I know what I'm trying to say. I just lack the words like a toddler, but um, basically that when you, when we start getting into the question about who's doing politics better, DeSantis or Trump, um, I feel like any error that Trump makes that a normal politician makes, he's, it doesn't matter in the same way. He's able to make up for it with the performance um, because it, it, to, to people, it's just that like he's a non-politician and a blunt force object. And that's all that matters. And it doesn't matter if, you know, he's, he sounds like, he likes Cuomo. I think people like really see that stuff as uh, for what it is, which is the same opportunistic politicking that Trump is just trying to take down DeSantis by slinging whatever piece of mud he can get his hands on. Because first of all, he's amused by it. And second of all, he's literally just as trying to take down DeSantis. Like, he doesn't like the guy. And I feel like people are smart enough to know that and um, also enjoy the show enough to know that it's not like we didn't see this in the primary in 2016. We absolutely did. Um, Donald Trump, Trump sounded like he was to the left of plenty of those guys on plenty of issues. And, uh, you know, when he said everyone would, would have health care and, and be taken care of um, in the election after repeal and replace was the rallying cry of the Republican Party. So all that is to say, um, I don't know if Donald Trump can make like a, a uh, normal, fatal political error because being Donald Trump sort of compensates for all of the things that, um, you know, would, would bring a normal candidate down. So to play devil's advocate here for a moment, um, the issues he's crossing sort of Republican orthodoxy are on, right? Um, if you go back to 2016, he's, what is he crossing sort of the, the policy line on? He's saying, I want everyone to have health care, which is, one issue where Republicans poll really badly. In other words, there are a lot more people in this country uh, that, that imagine that some kind of socialized healthcare system is a good thing than don't. Now, I disagree with that policy, but that's the reality. It's, it's healthcare um, tends to be an issue where Republicans poll badly over time. Immigration is not that, right? Um, and, and so even, even some of the other things, like the, he got hit for supporting Social Security and Medicare, Right. Those are issues where Republicans are vastly underwater, even with their own base on polling, right? Pointing out that that Social Security cannot function, continue to function when people, you know, live an additional 10 or 15 years than when it was created and they have many, many fewer kids that the, the math doesn't work on Social Security. That's not a popular thing, even within the Republican Party, right? Among actual Republican voters versus, you know, hitting Ron DeSantis for not being in favor of amnesty, Right. 
No, I, that's true. Theoretically, I would think that that would land differently with the base than some of the things. So the things that they hit Donald Trump on policy-wise in 2016 and 2015 seem to me to be, at least in retrospect, things that, leaving aside whether they're good or bad, right, for a moment, but just in terms of the politics, things where the Republican Party platform was quite unpopular even with their own base. And so hitting, you know, Trump for failing to stick to that orthodoxy was very unsuccessful versus hitting him for, you know, now flipping and being in favor of amnesty. I mean, that was one of his core issues. And it's an issue that is rightly unpopular with the, the Republican Party base, no? No, I think that's right. Although I guess it it depends on how much of this develops into a pattern with him or if he's just opportunistically throwing stuff at the wall um, as it occurs to him. And then he's going to go out to his rallies and rail against amnesty. Um, the interesting thing about Donald Trump is it, it genuinely doesn't matter because, um, you know, as long as he's still, I think your point is a really good one. As long as he's still like broadly seen as being on the right side of the immigration issue um, and is going to his rallies and is still assuring his supporters that he's going to be tough on the border, et cetera, et cetera, um, and build the wall, then I think that he's he's still, he can throw whatever mud he wants to at Ron DeSantis. Um, that's, that's my expectation. I think um, that's my expectation trying to have learned from 2016. I do think, you know, anytime you try to learn from 2016, you also run the risk of potentially overcorrecting. And that's something I've definitely seen some people do. Uh, but I will say, like, I think he he just is able to get away with that stuff so long as he continues to, um, to the point you made, like, actually sound when he's not in attack mode, like he's on the right side of the issue. Now, the big one big lingering question of all of this um, is for Donald Trump, he, he now has the disadvantage of having been president, of campaigning for president, having been president. So this like crazy, fantastical idea of the host of Celebrity Apprentice becoming president and that what if is not on voters' minds anymore. I think that was really powerful. And, um, you know, folks know, for instance, that there is no giant wall on our southern border. Um, that's That, I think, is a, a fair counterpoint to what I'm saying, because people might be like, well, I mean, you're talking about amnesty and you didn't build the wall. Um, that's That, I think, is a, a legitimate counter argument. So, I mean, I, I don't know if it'll work or not, but my sense is that the best case that DeSantis can prosecute against Trump um, is going to be basically the one he laid out in that interview, which is Donald Trump said a lot of, of funny things, a lot of true things, a lot of great things. He, he did not follow through on some of his most important core promises. Um, and, and if I were, you know, and I'm, you know, thank God I'm not a political consultant. So take this with a grain <laughs> of salt. But, you know, the two most potent issues that I would hit him on were, would exactly be immigration and failing to build the wall and follow through on that. Um, and crime. I think the public sentiment on crime, especially in the Republican Party, has shifted so far. Maybe it was never in line with that sort of libertarian criminal justice reform, whatever first step step act like <laughs> vibe is. Um, but I, I think it's a very legitimate and actually, that's a good question. I don't know how Ron DeSantis voted on the first step act. Was he still in Congress by that point? That is a great question, because I think that was fairly early. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm um, look it up right now. Yeah, you look it up and I'll I'll 
keep people entertained while you find that answer because obviously <laughs> Ron DeSantis voted for the first step act and he was still in Congress. That is just a complete, you know, he can't, he can't be the one to throw that missile then. Um, but I do think it's, it's a potentially potent line of attack to say, you know, look, you let more criminals out of jail. That is what this first step act did. Um, and I would like to see it get, I guess my perspective on the, on the whole primary, like, how this primary is going to play out, I could see it being very helpful for the Republican Party if it if it puts to bed a lot of this sort of um, establishment, uh, old pre fifteen Republican Party ideas, right? When when Nikki Haley fails to to top whatever six percent, um, when Tim Scott's messaging doesn't doesn't go very far, right? Um, I think there could be something positive in the Republican Party if you have Trump and DeSantis essentially trying to outdo each other on this more aggressive agenda um, and trying to say which one of them will be the best leader for the party. Whether Maybe that's on based on pure charisma and trust. Maybe it's on policy. We have that debate, right? I think that could be very positive for the party. Um, if, on the other hand, basically it becomes uh, a primary in which a lot of the very important things that Trump brought in or at least opened up the Overton window on in American politics get shoved back in to the mm. closet because Trump is now using them to hit DeSantis, right? Or using those issues to hit DeSantis. I think that could be really bad. Um, so my, my friend Dave Reboy um, wrote something that I think is, is quite true on this. And, and it's about the whole vibes versus policy. Sort DeSantis of voted yes, just to. <laughs> well, he can't make that argument then. <laughs> uh, no, but <laughs> The larger point I'm making is is actually well beyond DeSantis versus Trump. Like, it's what direction this debate goes in, right? Um, and and Dave Reboy uh, wrote on his Substack. He said basically, some folks of these folks seem to want to be quote unquote seen. They want their rage and anger mirrored back at them. I'm sympathetic to that impulse, but unfortunately, it's not enough. It doesn't do anything for your quality of life, and just as importantly, it doesn't protect you at all from the predations of the left. I think that's largely true in that, you know, vibe shifts and whatever, <laughs> Trump being absolutely hilarious, uh, which he is, um, his nicknames, right? Th there is an increasingly hard nature of the left's power in this country um, to the point where I think ordinary people really do feel the boot on the neck. Like they feel like they can't say obvious things at work. They, they are, you know, it's thrown in their face. We have this, this liturgical calendar event every year called Pride Month. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think people feel that, like, I think ordinary people really feel that. And I think they are connecting with Trump initially and now sort of fighting back against that. But if you don't do anything concrete at the end of the day with that backlash, I, I don't see how this kind of, um, politics actually protects us. Yeah. And, and Reboy is obviously like aggressively team DeSantis and oh, yeah. he's, he's strongly no problem with that. Yeah, there's no, it, he's a he's a I think a an effective defender of DeSantis, and the argument is from my perspective that particular um, argument is true because Donald Trump's attacks um, are we've already seen it happen just in the sort of very online Twitter space, which is obviously um, different than the average citizen, but actually pretty reflective of where people who are in positions of power spend their virtual time. Um, we've already seen people defending uh, in, the, in the service of defending Trump, 
uh, attacking, for instance, like this is what's mind boggling. Even Donald Trump championed Ron DeSantis until until they started running against each other. And so to have um, such a swath of the like activist media class um, actively trying to tear down the most successful Republican governor who has enacted the most successful conservative policy agenda um, in years and in a way that is an elevation of where conservative policy used to be in a way that actually really meets the moment. If we're going to go through a primary cycle where you have a significant chunk of the activists and media class attacking that person, it is not good for the conservative movement, period. Primaries are great because they help suss these things out. But in, and this has always been the problem with Trump, right? Is that he's, he's definitely Trump before an ideology. You know, he puts, he puts Trump before an ideology because he believes the ideology of, of winning, um, of Donald Trump winning is like the central ideology. And so, yeah, like it's, it's not, it's certainly not in the service of advancing, uh, the conservative agenda. Donald Trump may say that it's in the service of advancing a pro-American agenda because Donald Trump will win and therefore America will win. But, um, to attack DeSantis from from the left is uh, repeatedly to attack him from the left or to advance spurious arguments, um, you know, libertarian arguments on Disney, for instance, which um, are not just from the left, but actually have come from the Asa Hutchinson's and the, the business folks on the right. Uh, that's really damaging. That's a high profile group of people who are now going to uh, sort of viscerally, emotionally be dragged into defend- defending Trump's position on those issues. Um, And to the point that we were just talking about, like, so long as Trump goes out and, you know, slams wokeness, slams border policy, et cetera, et cetera, he's probably still fine. He's covered himself enough to make those attacks. But those attacks, I think, will do a lot of damage in dividing um, the activist sort of media class and uh, changing the, the conversation rather than Lifting up a positive example of conservative governorship that Donald Trump gave his stamp of approval. That's really all he has to say. (laughs) I just, look, I don't care that Donald Trump wants to attack Ron DeSantis. He can say he's meatball Ron. He can say he's, he's not charismatic, which might be true. He can say like, there's all kinds of ways to attack Ron DeSantis. But to the point you just made, if it means we're going back to 2012 on Disney, there is a problem here, right? Where you have Nikki Haley, who's, I mean, a whole different story how bizarre it is to have a presidential candidate whose job clearly is to run interference for one of her rivals on the presidential candidate stage is very bizarre um but clearly running interference for donald trump right um so she's going around saying like well we'll welcome disney into south carolina that's more jobs like as though there's no conflict like not acknowledging at all that the whole phenomenon of, of the cultural positions of Disney and what they have done, um, just not even acknowledging it, pretending it's it's 2012 and just saying it's just a matter of jobs. Um, I don't it's know. It's like RIFRA, right? It's like Pence, North Carolina's RIFRA conversation about trans bathrooms in like 2012 and 2014. It just, it just seems like surrender to me. And I mean, there is some polling that would suggest um, that Republicans Republicans, the voters actually are quite strongly in the, you know, screw Disney mm-hmm. camp, right? Mm-hmm. And if you, I'm going to put a poll up in a minute, but you can also just look at the success of the boycott. Finally, we're starting to see some of this successful boycotts of Bud Light and to a lesser extent Target, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that there's enormous energy from Republican voters and even independent yeah. voters on some of these things. 
that is totally not matched by, and I wonder like if any of this rhetoric from the Trump camp is going to land because that's what I hope it doesn't land. If Donald Trump wins the primary, fine. Like whatever. I prefer DeSantis. I've been open about that, but like whatever, nobody cares what I, I prefer. <laughs> um, I, I get that. Like if people d dislike Ron DeSantis for any number of reasons, but if in, in, in the course of attacking him, they attack this entire very important update to the Republican agenda. I think we're going to have a huge problem. Um, I'm going to put this this little graphic up because I'm learning how to use graphics on. <laughs> Inez has pivoted to video. Um, yeah, no. So it, this is this is a, a poll taken between um, 2019 and 2022. So it doesn't even go into 2023, but October last October runs through last October. It's Republicans' view of banks, large corporations have become much less positive since 2019. <laughs> and you see um, the approval for banks and other financial institutions. It's a straight line down. I mean, it was 63% approval. Um, now Republicans, Democrats, and Independents are all hovering in the high 30s or uh, low 40s. Um, they're all basically the same, meaning Republicans today have the same view of banks as Democrats had <laughs> in, yeah. in 2019, right? Um, large corporations, same thing. Actually, you see on large corporations, a little bump from Democrats actually coming up a little bit, not too much, but a little bit. And everybody else's opinion going way down on large corporations. Technology companies specifically plunge straight down. Um, and interestingly, a, a downward line for independents and for Democrats as well after a brief bump in, in 2021. Um, so, but, but now Republican opinions of technology companies going way down, right? So you do see like in these, this poll, you do see that this change of agenda that Ron DeSantis is emblematic of um, in Florida, regardless of whether the guy should be our next president or not, um, he has been the governor who has implemented a lot of the things surrounding understanding that large corporations and big business are should no longer be joined at the hip with the Republican Party, um, understanding that these cultural issues are tied in to, uh, you know, corporate power, um, that those two things aren't separate, that in fact, that corporations, large, large corporations are attempting to stop state voters from deciding whether or not, for example, they want to criminalize um, transition procedures for minors, right? So I think that, that those polls are quite hopeful in terms of the base. And I'm wondering how the people who answered those polls in 2022 feel. And I genuinely don't know this. Do they just follow what Trump says? Or do, when, when Trump says something about, you know, Disney being OK and the Bud Light bo by boycott being dumb, that was Don Jr., that last part. Do they say, well, I like Trump, but he's wrong on this? Mm -hmm. Well, so I was thinking as you were talking about this, um, I was in a, a poor white rural area of uh, the country this weekend. And as I was driving, saw a sign that said, if you aren't for Trump, you're trespassing. And then a stop sign um, that somebody had graffiti spray painted on FJB for F Joe Biden. And immediately my thought was, that's cultural. That is not economic. That is not about, you know, people wanting um, Joe Biden to like, for instance, like if Joe Biden um, 
had so many like he he has done so much welfare through covid basically he has been um in terms of those like safety net programs very generous um and it's true his economy sucks and i'm sure that's part of this but um i bet whoever spray painted that would be way more pissed about disney um and about uh you know any of those sort of like biden cultural agenda than about um the the economy at that point again i think those things go hand in hand i'm not saying there was no economic uh motivation behind this potential uh behind this uh vandal uh vandal's decision in particular but i do think yeah we all know at this point that it's obvious and that people would say, you know, when Trump was saying all the jobs or Nikki Haley saying all the jobs that, you know, Ron DeSantis is driving away from Florida. I think if you're having this conversation with a lot of average Americans, they're going to say, well, we have to draw the line somewhere and uh, somewhere should be sexualizing children. Um, and that's probably resonant that like, this is something the left gets wrong a lot. I think it's something Bernie Sanders campaign got wrong is that, um, it's it's a very Marxist uh, conception of the working class that you know what they prioritize will necessarily be um, will necessarily be their their economic needs because those are are sort of tied in a Maslow sense to survival et cetera et cetera. I mean, people see culture in the same way. Uh, people see see cultural culture as sort of fundamental to their ability to survive um, as an American and to you know be. And it's also their taxpayer dollars. Like it's the money that you're taking out of their pocket and giving to Disney as a subsidy. So anyway, all that is to say, I think you're correct that uh, there is a line that most Republican voters, people who are going to vote in Republican primary, they're going to draw it at Disney. And it's a really poor attack on DeSantis. It's not a powerful attack on DeSantis, but it's a destructive attack on DeSantis to the extent that it, it mobilizes people in the conservative movement to defend the attack and go on offense against good policy um, that most people agree with from Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Um Let's let's keep going with that thread about sort of culture and economics um, and then the primacy of culture. Um, you know, I, I've said I've become my like TM line, right? Like my trademark, but the the culture war is the big tent. And I, I still think that's true in, in the sense that you can I mean, you can back this very in a very real way with polls and um, the, the issues that swing suburban female voters that that the GOP seems to have trouble um, in, in this current era, seeming to its increasingly working class party, um, but still very much needs to win key states. Um, they, they care about indoctrination in schools, right? They care about minor transition. They care about a lot of these issues um, to a lesser extent now, like they, they wanted schools reopened during COVID, right? Um, so, think those issues are big tent issues, but now we're going to have to adjudicate some things within the tent. And increasingly, yeah. um, I, I have seen both online and just like also um, in person uh, talking to a lot of uh, what I would call like sort of activist moms, right? Um, in, in this sort of uh, culture war over the kids space, right? Um, and it's, it's becoming increasingly clear uh, that we're going to have to have have a nice little conversation, hopefully a friendly one. Um, and and it goes to the heart of, I think, where we're at in, in the culture war, which is um, 
you know, are these policies a continuation of liberalism from, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago? Or, or do they represent some kind of fundamental break? Hmm. Um, and to the extent that I think a lot of people who were previously liberal or at least more libertine or libertarian on a lot of these cultural issues, I do think that this is, you know, giving a lot of people pause to think and reflect on their past positions and maybe, you know, change them a little bit. Uh, but there's also this corresponding reaction from some of the allies on the center left to like redouble down on purity politics and separating themselves from the dumb Christian hicks. You know, <laughs> like that's how they think about it. It really seems like that to me. It's like this cultural, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like, do you remember the um, the Harper's letter about yes. speech, where yes. they have to spend three paragraphs announcing Trump before they even get to the point of the letter, right? Yep. Um, it's like this reflexive purity politics thing to, to dunk on the Christian right and the moral majority. And, and the line of argument is basically, yes, I'm against this current iteration of the cultural left, um, but that's totally different. I'm very much in favor of everything that came up to right five years ago. But then something crazy happened, right? <laughs> and we went off the rails. Um, one, I don't think this is a very convincing taxonomy of what actually happened at all. Um, you have to deal with the fact that basically every one of the predictions that were mocked um, made by the Christian right in the 90s and 2000s has come true. If anything, they undersold the the slipperiness of the slope, right? Um, and it just seems to me to be both politically dumb to like start this fight with, with religious conservatives, but, but also like just fundamentally, it seems um, backwards to me. Like you should be the one apologizing to the Christian right because they were right. And you were wrong. Like you said that we could do all this, this sort of uh, sexual libertinism um, and still believe that we would have the, the fundamental family unit that, that we wouldn't be completely atomized. You believed we could build a completely secular society without massive consequence. It seems to me that, the, the, you know, the consequences of mass secularization are more clear now than they were five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, that sort of aimlessness and meaninglessness and inability of the West to actually replicate itself, you know, to have children and, and to... Um, you know, advance itself unapologetically as a civilization worth defending. All of these things seem, seem to me to much more clearly be connected now than they were before. Um, and yet choosing this time to return to a kind of new atheist, whatever, hardline separation about, you know, dumping on on the, the Christian right seems, one, completely passe to me, like how many of them are left, right? <laughs> and, and two, it just it, it seems to me I have like a complete opposite posture. Like if I'm trying to build a coalition with people who are right about where we are 15 years ago, the way to do that is not to, to like flip the bird to their face and try to, to play some kind of purity politics where we still pretend that they're icky. I mean, this is the, I think this is the defining question because um, I think back to the parents that I talked to out in Loudoun County. And one of the interesting things about that is, um, you know, you, and you've probably talked to and, and interacted with these types of parents before too. Uh, they're, they're not 
your sort of uh, first in line Republican primary voter at all. Um, some were Democrats, some were independents, some were just kind of non-voters. Um, and I would bet that most of them were, you know, happy when Obergefell was handed down and generally considered themselves to be um, accepting and, you know, would, would go to a same-sex wedding, et cetera, et cetera, and are, are generally consider themselves to be tolerant and of the, the LGBT movement. And what's interesting about that to me is I agree with most of what you just said, because I could see half of those parents going in the direction where it's like, yeah, the rest of the stuff is icky. Like I actually, I can't vote for DeSantis because of the six week heartbeat ban. But then I can also see the other half saying, I had no idea how far this was going to go. I had no idea how deeply support for or defenses of, of pedophilia were embedded in the like progressive movement. Like the person who is reading the Federalist, the person who is um, listening to high noon independent media and paying attention to those stuff saying, I had no idea what fetal development looked like at six weeks. Um, and, you know, suddenly the floodgates are open because the gatekeepers have been disproven to them. And the question is whether, you know, there's there's any way to to make that coalition work. I think the answer in the short term is yes. Um, I think you have an, an example in both Youngkin and DeSantis um, who were able to just like message it themselves in a way that makes sense to people. I think in the long term, we're seeing this play out in kind of the arc of Jordan Peterson's life. Um, very, very interestingly, I, I think somebody who's like, you know, came in through a very, very normal um, gateway that a lot of other people came in to like starting questions their priors question the left, which was compelled trans pronouns. That's what really made him famous is when he spoke up against that in Canada. And then, um, you know, it just totally started exploring the world and he's exploring Christianity now. Um, I think that's going to represent some percentage of the population that's not, you're not able to reconcile with another percentage of the population in a political party or movement long-term. Um, and I think so many Americans are so deeply um, influenced by years and years and years of cultural conditioning that it's going to be basically impossible to get it out of, you know, if, if that's your moral compass, you know, you either double down on it or you throw it all out because you realize it's all fake. And so I can see it going in, in two different directions, but I think no matter what, it will go in two different directions. It's not like most people are suddenly going to be like, oh, why is, you know, what, the, what is the, what's the deal with a burger fell? Um, so that's, I, I think that's probably the most interesting question, period. And we talked about it Nat, on NatCon Squad today because um, of the like James Lindsay stuff and the, the Yoram Hazoni James Lindsay backlash, but or, or back and forth. But I really think um, it's important for people not to be, not to hide what the real agenda here is. And just one last thought is that uh, on Breaking Points last week, um, Crystal Ball and I were having a conversation about Mary Margaret Olihan's uh, story about News Corps and um, like their, you know, uh, corporate handbook. And Crystal said, well, this story shows that, you know, it was never just about children, right? Like conservatives say it's just about children. But when uh, free adults want to, you know, do what makes them happy and have their own autonomy, um, you know, it's conservatives are coming for that too. And I think it's important for conservatives to say yes. And to say a resounding yes, that compelled speech 
um, the freedom to use single sex spaces, that stuff is absolutely on the chopping block. Um, so that's just one example. Yeah, I mean, so I have a couple other examples. I think I think it's important in the, in the entire trans debate, and I try to turn to this when I have the opportunity to make these kinds of arguments in a more mainstream space. I I never thought that the firewall between adults and children was going going to hold. I, th- I think it's absurd to say that we're going to celebrate uh, this idea in you know every every ad we're going to have people come to the white house right we're going to like celebrate we're going to light the the white house in in the the trans flag colors or whatever it is right and then to say well but this but wait till you're 18 right <laughs> all you're going to accomplish which i'm not saying is nothing all you're going to accomplish is that there'll be some percentage of people who change their minds between 15 and 18 right but 18 is still a pretty vulnerable age right there's going to be a whole lot of people just getting irreversible surgery that which they would regret just as much in 10 years as that they had had it at 16 because the problem is not fundamentally yes it's important uh, there is an important legal distinction between children and adults in any society right um but but the issue here is truth can you change your sex you know <laughs> what do these surgeries do these are issues of facts and truth not issues of of like it's it's not somehow a positive thing to geld a man because he's over the age of, of 18. Um, I think we can't avoid those kinds of normative statements. Um, and I'll give you a, a different example, actually related exactly to this, this issue, right? The way that we've been framing this debate is, you know, and it's it's an important framing because it, it does contain elements of truth, right? Um, that, for example, pediatricians are circumventing parents' wishes. Uh, in order to offer quote unquote gender affirming care to their children, that is in fact a a violation of parental authority. But we started violating parental authority in matters like this a long time ago, in the '90s and in the 2000s when we uh, when we and I, by that I mean liberals for the most part, and and with v- relatively few objections outside of this moral majority sort of Christian right. Um, we we did that about birth control and, and abortion, right? Um, in in two thousand, in I think it was two thousand eight. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. I think it was even the same time, the same year that that voted down gay marriage in California. They also passed uh, the the quote unquote right for fifteen and sixteen year old girls to get an abortion without their parents' knowledge. Hmm. And for a long time, you know, um, it's been considered best practices for pediatricians to offer birth control to teenagers, even when their parents don't want them to have that, right? And this has been all completely accepted. And my question is, like, if we're talking to some of these, like, James Lindsay-style anti-woke centrists or Democrats, right? You know, the question is, if you're making the parental authority argument with regard to transition, what actually is is the difference? I, I think I can make a difference because I will say, okay, but one is, like, permanently mutil- mutilating, Right. But I, I, I don't I mean, we already violated the firewall bet- that were parents in except in, in cases of, of provable abuse that parents make the, the medical decisions for their children. We already violated that in the name of, of more um, 90s or centrist liberalism a long time ago. Um, so I'm not seeing where the, the, the categorical distinction is between um, prescribing birth control pills or sending a kid f- to, you know, to Planned Parenthood for abortion at age 16 without their parents' knowledge and transing them. I, I don't 
we already accepted this this uh, framework. We've just added transition because it's the latest thing. Um, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, I actually think the same-sex marriage and sort of same-sex norms uh, question is really central to this because when I think about someone like um, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang and Joe Rogan and people who are like very much travelers of the left, but have come around on some of these really common sense cultural questions because they believe in like actual science. Um, my camera just uh, cut out for some reason, but I'll start it again uh, because they believe in actual like the the real non-Fauci version of science and what they believe in is like having um, a public policy and a culture that supports the, um, the, the body and like lets the body be in tune with what's natural. Um, that's, that, that is uh, a promising, I think, group and a promising direction for um, a Republican party. I shouldn't say the conservative movement, but the Republican party and what, it gets to an impasse there is really, I think, same sex attraction, same sex marriage, same sex, um, like cultural norms. And I have never been able to get that Disney example out of my head. I already referenced it here, but I think about it all the time when you have, um, people saying what's wrong with Disney having a same sex kiss in a movie. I think this is fundamentally such an interesting question because I think we've talked about it before. You have some parents who say, it sexualizes the movie. Well, then the other parents will say there are straight kisses in, in Disney films all the time. So what is the difference if you are pro Obergefell or pro uh, same-sex marriage? What is the difference between um, the, the straight kiss and the same-sex kiss? And I would just like actually be really interested to hear the Joe Rogans, the sort of IDW folks, um, and, and maybe even you and us explain that because I think what that shows um, is something that it's it's fundamentally a question of like if if we're not just hyper novel, but like is this are the norms out of whack with like what what drag used to be like the interesting part of drag used to be that it was subversive and it was sort of shady and it was in like the club that was open till four in the morning and and happened after dark uh, the contemporary version of drag is not that um, and it sort of takes the wind out of the sails and you've actually heard that argument being made from some on the left that and like some drag performers have have made that argument um, but then if if you see the like negative effects and you see the slippery slope, how far are you willing to pull back? Um, that's fundamentally one of the big questions because I think when push comes to shove, people are not fundamentally willing enough to to pull are are not fundamentally willing to pull back um, to a point that actually makes sense. Well, I think you were right a couple answers ago when you said that the Overton window or the like. I think people's minds are more open about this stuff than they were three years ago or five years ago, not less. I think you'll probably start to see reflected, maybe not in gay marriage, because I think that's very ossified debate. Um, but a couple points, but on some of these issues, I guess I should say, like, I, I, I think people, for example, the backlash against Pride Month is not exclusively about trans, right? There is this sense that... Um, Right. You know, th that the rainbow flag has been stuffed down our throats long enough and like that that we're sick of seeing this particular 
constituency catered to in every aspect of life over and over again. Um, I, I think that that backlash is somewhat broader than the than the specific point, especially about kids and trans. Um, so about I think you're actually alluding to the way that I think about this. Um, you're alluding to, to polia and, and to the distinction between the mainstream um, yeah. and and counterculture. And I think that's really, to my mind, that's where I balance some of these things. My, you know, I know this sounds so fake and gay, but like <laughs> my, oh my, my my desire for some genuine tolerance, right, um, for sexual minorities, for um, a, a certain kind of um, like sexual expression that may lead to, uh, you know, May, may lead to, for example, like good art or, and so that's not exclusively about homosexual sexual minorities, right? It could just be that, you know, uh, people, you, what you just supported was dunking a crucifix in urine. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, um, I had Justin Lee on this podcast and we were talking through what would happen if you put, I almost want to do it, but I know that I shouldn't do it. Um, but I almost want to see what would happen if you put the pride flag in urine, like just duplicated exactly the art and see what happens and what the response is and make the government pay for it. Christ. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it could be a very interesting experiment, perhaps itself performance art. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, I do think that like there is a certain role in society. And, and if you look backwards into like ancient societies, for example, or um, for, uh, a certain amount of seeminess and sort of erotic underbelly of, of society. The question is whether it should be asserted as normal, as mainstream, and as an example for what people, quote unquote, ought to do when they grow up. Um, and I think that goes to the, the question you had about the, the gay kisses in Disney movies and stuff like that, right? I think there is a difference. Mm -hmm. Between seeing like two 16 year old characters, a boy, a boy and a girl kissing and two boys kissing, I actually think there is a difference. And, and there are a lot of conservatives who are not willing to admit that. And th the difference is because most children will not be gay. They will not grow up to be gay. Right. That it's important to assert a sense of normalcy and mainstream um, sensibility about these things. And they can and if they are gay, they can find they can find it later. <laughs> Right. It's not like it doesn't exist. It just does. I, I, I think the, the answer here and the balance between some kind of tolerance and not wanting to live in Uganda. Right. Um, and and uh, and putting it in mainstream Disney movies for children, I, I think actually that is a, a perfectly tenable argument to make that it should exist, but it should be it should be somewhat relegated to the fringe of society. It should be allowed, but not endorsed. Um, this is the third way. You may have just convinced me that there is a cultural third way because um, that that is a great answer to the question. It, you know, from from I think a secular perspective is like what is um, a norm and what isn't a norm is entirely different from what should be tolerated and what shouldn't be tolerated. And I, as a Christian, would still say that gets you into sort of a, a sticky situation when trying to say, but we don't have to have that like debate here. Uh, but that like, that would be the response that a Christian would have is like, and I could see maybe somebody like Patrick Deneen or Adrian Vermeule having, which is like fundamentally, um, well, if we don't believe that it's healthy, why would it be state sanctioned? Um, but all of that aside, um, if, if you, if, if people from like a secular vantage point, a pro LGBT vantage point are, uh, willing to say that something shouldn't be uh, normalized, that I think actually means you can have common cause. Um, 
even if you don't roll it all the way back or go, you know, full Christian nationalist. Look, um, I, I don't think that this goes back to the definition of what liberalism actually is, right? Um, because under the, the, it seems like under the definition of a lot of the people who are attacking quote unquote Christian nationalism, like James Lindsay, there has never been, there's no part of American history where we've been a liberal Republic until 1968. Mm. Right. Um, even going back to the founding where you had laws that were superficially like what you've gone to pass now, right. Um, the, the death penalty for homosexuality, exceedingly rarely enforced. We were not chopping people's heads off. Um, for for engaging in private homosexual activity in America, for the most part, <laughs> I, heads off never. But I, I don't think there's there there were almost no actual executions. And actually, um, a nice throwback to uh, if you have to Naomi ask Naomi Wolf, Wolf that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that where was, are we going to be? <laughs> yeah, that was the in the UK uh, system. But she found out that you know sentence executed didn't actually mean that they executed people. It just meant that the case was closed, right? Um, so yeah, I, I don't think we have, we have, uh, there are various ways of various levels of sanction for sort of non-normative activity, um, starting from the, the, the mere cultural sanction of not putting it in children's movies or not teaching it to third graders and going all the way to enacting laws and then going all the way to actually enforcing, tyrannically enforcing these kinds of laws, right? Um, with the death penalty or whatever. There's like a huge swath of politics in the middle there um, that that I think is worth exploring. And again, like, because I, I also went back and forth on this. I, I don't have any... I don't, I don't really want to live in a society that ruthlessly enforces sort of Christian moral norms by law. Right. Um, that being said, I do want to live in a society that enforces and normatively enforces certain, I guess you can call them Christian. I think that they're broader than Christian, but, but that actually, I don't think you can get away from asserting a normative vision of the common good. And I think with regard to these matters, I think it's totally fair to say, well, the, the version of the common good that we're asserting is that it's good to be straight, to grow up get married, have children in the context of marriage, right? The fact that people live their lives in different ways than this, we don't need to, you know, throw them in jail for doing so, but we should normatively discourage it by saying this is the ideal, right? Um, I, I don't think those two yeah. things are intention. I, I think it's completely possible to live in a small, ill, liberal society, but you need something more. You do need some kind of normative assertion about what the good life is. Um, that doesn't mean that you are intolerant and uh, completely or that you throw everyone in jail from deviating from the good life by one, you know, one foot off the path. Right. Um, you can imagine in obsessively tyrannical societies that would do that, but it's not inherently tyrannical. Um, and then this is a side point, but I just want to get this this off my chest. I'm really tired of being told that drag is not sexual. Um, of course, drag is sexual. It has always been sexual. And if if you call it not sexual, what you're telling me is that your notion of the sexual is exclusively pornographic, right? Mm -hmm. Unless something raises to the level of pornography, it's not sexual. Because that's what basically what people are saying, oh, because they don't actually show their junk, it's not sexual. Okay, that's not the definition of sexual. That's the definition of pornographic. Hmm. I think, you know, oh, that's, that's super interesting because... <sighs> There's, there's so many different directions to go off of there. Um, it's interesting because I think I can see this again going in 
a couple of different ways where I actually wonder if your average, you know, Obama Trump voter or maybe even Obama Biden voter um, who really doesn't like the cultural stuff, but puts up with it uh, for various different reasons or may, I don't know, you're like your you're average American. It's like, can you have um, a version of the United States that is, uh, you know, without having like without bringing back sodomy laws can the evolution of the country um, in some ways like devolve without also necessarily bringing sodomy laws into the package? And that is, uh, I mean, I think that's a fascinating question. Um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think we can go back period because I think the average voter is so saturated um, with cultural conditioning that, um, you know, anything that is anti-gay is like fundamentally going to be a, a roadblock uh, for them. But maybe I'm wrong on that. I, I could be totally wrong on that. And based on everything, the argument that you just laid out, I'm I very mel- very well may be wrong on that. But um, I think you're definitely right about where that voter that you're describing is. I don't think I think there is exactly zero political energy behind bringing back sodomy laws in the United States. Um there's barely any energy around, you know, putting age restrictions on pornography in the United States. So uh, I, I, I sincerely, I'm not sitting around worried about whether or not the states are going to tomorrow start passing sodomy laws again. Um, That being said, sodomy laws were on the books for most of American history. They weren't ruthlessly enforced for the most part. And in the, the case, Lawrence, in 2005, that struck down the constitutionality of those laws, they actually had to arrange for enforcement, um, basically with a friendly prosecutor, right? So prosecutor agreed to prosecute Lawrence for sodomy so they could bring the case to the Supreme Court. Because yeah. there was no functional prosecution of sodomy in like, you know, 2003 in Texas. Um, and if people tell you that there was, they're lying. Like there was no hellscape where they were chasing down the gays in Texas. It wasn't, it it, it wasn't modern Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, that being said, the last, the last uh, serious enforcement of those kinds of laws that I can think of in our history was probably in the 1960s or early 1960s and fifties more, you know, in, in public gay bars. Hmm. Right. And again, this is not where I am. I'm totally fine with having, gay bars, right? Public gay bars. Um, But it's to say that a a state that has a statute like that on the books is, is quote unquote illiberal is to exclude the entire history of the United States and most of of the world from ever being liberal. Like we've basically never had a liberal state until the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's too narrow a definition of liberalism. You can have a liberalism and a certain kind of tolerance that still coexists with this power, especially in the United States, mostly granted on the state level, which I think is important to regulate on behalf of public morals. This was totally non-controversial, both constitutionally and culturally in the United States until the late 60s and, and the 70s. Totally not controversial. For the states to pass, now you can debate, okay, should that authority be used to shut down gay bars? No, I don't think so. Right. But that authority exists and it's not illiberal to live in. That's that's not the purpose of, of, for example, the Bill of Rights of America is not to to protect gay bars. It isn't. They're only incidentally protecting gay bars. Uh, No, it's a blessing of liberty. 
Yeah. No, I, I just, I, I think it's, I think it's, um, and this is a mistake that I, I kind of disagree with the, the sort of trad right on as well, because they also, I think, accept too much the premise that what we've lived under since the late sixties is synonymous with small L liberalism or what a liberal state looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so therefore they have to place an excess going all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, right? Even though Thomas Jefferson wrote plenty about how it was necessary to have laws against homosexuality. Um, he was, he was actually very insistent on that point. Um, exactly because he thought too many, too many people would be homosexuals <laughs> if they didn't enforce it. So he thought it was a relatively popular inclination and therefore that's why the public laws against it were necessary in his view. Um, okay. So is that, are you okay with that? Am I, do I think it's illiberal? No. Mm. Do, would I vote for it? Would I use the moral authority that is requisite in citizenship to vote for such a law? No, but I don't think it's, it's a tyranny. And so this, I was just, I think this is the tension between um, priorities, right? It, it's not necessarily a tension in ideology, whereas like, like you said, you don't think it's illiberal, but if you have, and the abortion, the six week abortion question is a really good one on this. Like if, if you don't think it's, um, a, if it's a priority, if prioritizing it turns you off as a voter, not you, but like as a, a secular voter or a maybe post-Christian voter, um, I think that does legitimately turn people off to Ron DeSantis. Um, I, th I think that might be true in the general election. I think we're just really on abortion. We're still like developing our ability to talk about moral issues in a political way. Mm -hmm. um, it's been thrown back into politics after a long hiatus. And that, that's, I think I, I'm, I've clarified a little bit. You've helped me clarify what I wanted to say about this moral. I think the problem is that even the right has largely forgotten that this moral power of the state voter actually exists. It's like presumed inherently illegitimate to use. It's illiberal and illegitimate to use when the reality is that this moral power to regulate existed in the state level. It is, you know, the phrase is for health, the state has the power to regulate for health, safety, and morals, right? Um, that it was used in the United States in a thousand different ways. We're talking about sodomy laws, but we can just easily have a conversation about obscenity, right? Um, and mm -hmm. pornography. Uh, that was a totally accepted power that in fact, the tyranny would have been to take that power to make declarative statements, normative statements as a people in our system, we do this democratically on the state level to make moral statements through law that is now presumed inherently uh, illegitimate to do in a liberal society. And I think we've seen what the result is, is, and that is there's always some kind of normative declaration of culture and law. What, is hap what, what, what has happened is, is the left has filled it. The left is the one that has made the declarative moral statement for example, about homosexuality, about obscenity, about any one of these things. It's no longer considered legitimate for the citizens to get together, vote, and decide what they want these moral laws to be. It's, it's that if the right passes this, it's considered an imposition. And if the left, by default, advances the, their moral propositions, which are not neutral and have content, that that's illegitimate. When in reality, the way we should be hashing these things out is with our neighbors. Like it, it is that process exactly that, that makes up politics. It's when me and my neighbors get together and decide, okay, well, do we want to have a gay bar on the corner? Is that going to be publicly acceptable? Okay, well, how about pornography, right? 
you can say yes or no to any of these questions, but it's not an illegitimate discussion. And that's what bothers me. It's like been placed out and abortion has suddenly been thrown back into the quote unquote legitimate discussion. And I think what's happening now where Americans are actually starting to have to decide for the first time in 30 plus years, right? 40 years, um, where they stand on this question, whether they think it should be six weeks or 15 weeks or zero weeks or all the way, you know, post birth, right? They're actually exercising their moral faculties as citizens to, in concert with their neighbors to make these decisions. That is still a phrase from the left. That is what democracy looks like. <laughs> I mean, I think that's completely accurate and um, sort of a sort of a white pill, Inez. It's kind of unusual for you. Um, there's something very uh, The black pills, I don't know if we'll be allowed to exercise that faculty, but you're right. 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 No, and, and yeah, I think that's... Okay, so I, I read the new Patrick Deneen book today, and I'm it's under embargo, so I can't go too deep into it, but he deals with basically all of the questions that we've dealt with in this conversation, and I think in a, a very, very helpful way. Um, you know, there's, to me, there's a, a real question about whether we can get back to a place where, um, you know, in, in all of the country, where neighbor can talk to neighbor, um, because I think that absolutely does happen in some places of the country. But look, even, you know, t typically we have powerful, intolerant elites that are shutting down that discussion. But look what I just said about the Trump sign, where it said, if you aren't for Trump, you're trespassing, which means if you don't support Trump, I don't even want you on my property uh, or in my house. Um, you know, and uh, people have good reasons for feeling that way. But I just, I guess, lack the, the optimism to see us I should say it's an open question to me whether we, we, we can get to a point where you can hash these issues out. Um, and if the pendulum swings far enough back with enough people that there's critical mass and the country just sort of can take a, a deep breath and talk about these things and the best ideas can win out as is the sort of, um, as is the, the kind of stated goal of classical liberalism and like mill type liberalism, classical liberalism in the, the mill sense that, you know, we, the best ideas in the competition of um, the, in the competition of ideas, the best ones will win out in the, the marketplace of ideas. And I don't think there's a definitive answer to that question yet. Some people will say it's definitively no. Some people will say it's definitively yes, of course, this is all just growing pains. I actually just don't think we know. And I think the American experiment is in part an answer to that question. Yeah, no, I, I very much agree with the last part you said. I, I'm actually going to have a friend of mine, um, Alexis Carre, Alexi Carre, um, but he, he's French, which is why his name is hard for me to <laughs> no, um, but but he wrote a really good. I'm going to have him on to talk about this piece. He wrote a really good essay about Schmidtian politics and the distinction between friend and enemy, which is you know sort of popular, very online lingo for the right now. Um, and he's responding to an essay that's sort of lamenting the Schmidtian descent of politics that you're kind of you're you're hinting at, right? That neighbor can't talk to neighbor, um, and and he has a very smart take on it that really I. I thought about and now really agree with him. Um, we aren't polarized enough, right? We're not too polarized. We aren't polarized enough because our politics don't have high enough stakes, right? Our politics have been low stakes and, and avoiding some of these central questions of actually what is the good? What is bad? Like these are the, the essential pieces of politics. 
And we have avoided them. And at the end of the day, all politics, whether it's democratic or authoritarian, right, or monarchic, whatever, all politics is about settling those questions. And it forces you to imagine, okay, what, which normative assertions am I willing to fight what, like, and die for at the end of the day? Because that is the result of what happens when politics breaks down. When politics and political systems break down, we only have resort to force. And, and so what um, Alexi is saying is we have abandoned even the, that possibility of thinking about um, you know, what politics is in that deeper sense where it is the avoidance. And, and this was very high on the founder's mind, right? Coming from the, the 30 years war context uh, on religious matters, right? Where you have two normative decision uh, assertions, which from the you know modern secular perspective seem not that far apart from each other, right? They're both Christian assertions. Um, but where you have, have people dying by the hundreds of thousands and more, in very bloody ways over it because one person thinks that this is the good and the other one thinks that this is the good and they're going to fight over it, right? And so our, our system, our democratic system and the multiple levels of, of our, our system, the federalism of our system, right? Uh, multiple parts of Congress, all of these moving parts is supposed to provide a mechanism so that we do not have to resort to violence while we argue about with each other about what the good is, right? Yeah. And, I think we've kind of completely forgotten that. And in that sense, our politics are sort of very, you know, um, bombastic and we say lots of rude things to each other. Um, but in that sense, they are fundamentally low stakes in that it's not, people are not thinking about what assertions of the good they can live alongside their neighbors, you know, asserting and which ones they can't. They don't think about politics that way. We're too far removed from that fundamental reality that if if negotiations break down and we can't agree on the system and the, and the way that we resolve these questions, right? Uh, the alternative in the state of nature is by violence. Um, and I think we don't think enough about that. So in that sense, our politics is not political enough. We're completely out of, so to that point, we don't think about this as science and nature, capital S and capital N, but we're so completely out of touch with actual human nature by uh, virtue of modernity and all of the comforts that come along with it. We think in the words of an actual reverend that the moral arc of the universe is long and bends towards justice, which is like fundamentally opposed to Christian doctrine. Um, but uh, we, we think that humans, how often do you hear people say, I believe humans are inherently good. I believe humans are good. Like that is, tell that to somebody in medieval times or the rest of history um, and see how, how they agree with you. Like that's, I think, a very much a symptom of comfortable times. And what gives me pessimism about all of this and where I, I just fundamentally can't get over it. Like there have been nihilistic ideological movements. There have been countries um, that dealt with decadence and empires that dealt with decadence in the past. But I do believe there's something fundamentally different about high-tech postmodernism um, that has given way to this, this sort of almost um, accidental nihilism that's really just hedonism um that's like sanctioned hedonism or explicit hedonism um but it's actually just like ultimately nihilism and that i really worry um in mass is is so 
appealing to base human instincts to the lizard brain that you can't claw back from it. Um, and, you know, some people would say, well, you can't crawl back from it, comma, with a Republican system of government, with a small r Republican system of government, or with a classical liberal system of government. Um, but you can, if you increase like central state powers and apply them for the good, as you're saying, Inez, that might be some people's argument. Um, I don't think that would be a, a moral step, but I do fundamentally doubt whether or not, um, you know, when you're in the post-truth world, like, I feel like it's a Rubicon. Um, I've, or I should say, I feel like it might be a Rubicon. I don't think we have the, the answer to this yet, but I think it might be a Rubicon that we can't claw our way back out of because it's so self-defeating because once humans um, are that comfortable and that diluted, they will go uh, willingly into the matrix pods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't think even changing systems gets you away from this problem, right? It, it, it's at, there must be at some level an, a normative assertion, not to be trite, of the, but, but, but of the common good, right? Um, and there can be disagreement, uh, you know, maybe there's a tolerance around the edges for disagreement with that central sort of capital G good that's declared by a society and its government, right? Um, but I'm not sure even changing system gets you away. Like you can say, oh, like if we have a monarch, the monarch declares what's good and the rest of us just have to live with it, right? Um, but I, I don't think that works the same way in, in, in the modern world for all the same reasons that democracy is not adjudicating these questions, right? Like, because the veil has been pulled back, because we have this secularized and, and quote unquote scientific society, like the, the pronouncements, of, I, I, I struggle to, to think that, an, like, for example, an absolute monarchy would actually work in the, in the, the kind of technological radical world. I mean, um, you know, what would they say on Twitter about the good that the monarch produces? Or in some fundamental state of modernity, there is no veil enough on anything. I mean, this is the Nietzschean sort of um, conclusion, right? But there's not enough of a veil on anything. There's nobody with enough authority to to declare to declare this or that the good. Um, and I don't think pretending that a monarch would have that that sort of uh, authority in the modern age. Like, I don't think that solves the problem. The problem would be that, how to create the authority of a monarch to begin with, um, in, in a sense. Um, but Emily, thank you so much. This has been a, a, a darker and more um, philosophical so dark. conversation than, <laughs> than, than uh, well, next time we'll do one of those ones where we just insult each other for uh, an hour and, and people get to, to be amused by that. Um, there was some of that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm always I'm always here for you, Emily, as as the butt of your jokes. <laughs> thank you. Uh, it's a public service. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners. High noon with Ina Stepman, including After Dark, is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>